Hello and welcome. Episode 10, Foreign and Domestic, into the double digits. Knocking them out, We made folks. it. We've beaten podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> we made it to double digits. Uh, thanks again for anyone who's, uh, who's rejoining us, and hello for the first time to anyone who is checking us out. Um, this is Foreign and Domestic Unfiltered. I'm Patter Cleary. I'm here with my co-host, Ramon Mile. Hello, hello. Recording this on a Friday, switching stuff up, keeping it fresh. Um, so let's just roll right into it because we have a lot to talk about today. Um, so why don't we go ahead and crack in with our first uh, quick hit? What All do you right. got for us, Ramon? All right, folks, we're going to lead off today with the Amazon workers. Uh, the union was voted down just not too long ago. I got a right now an hour ago breaking news from the New York Times. Uh, yeah, so from the Times, we got. Quote, Amazon workers at a giant warehouse in Alabama voted decisively against forming a union on Friday, squashing the most significant labor drive in the giant's history and dealing a crushing blow to organizers. So what I got here is uh, there were 1,798 votes against unionization and 738 for. Um, That's fewer than 30 percent of the votes tallied for. Um, so basically the way that it works with unionization drives, uh, and I got this from the NLRB the other day, the National Labor Relations Board, you just need a simple majority of all eligible people that can vote mm-hmm. the uh, the 6,000, roughly 6,000 person warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama had uh, a little over 5,500 people eligible to vote. Um, so typically what that means is like the, some of the, those other 400 whatever people uh, that weren't eligible, probably hadn't been there long enough. You know, you typically you have to be there for a certain amount of time. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of sticky rules with unionization. But yeah, uh, you know, it came across my radar last night and I was seeing that the uh, the the vote no's were winning by a two to one margin. Uh, I think it was like at 10 o'clock last night. And it just it wasn't looking good because, again, you have to have 50 percent of eligible votes. And I think at that point last night, they'd already had like 1200 no's. So, yeah, it was kind of an insurmountable uh hill to climb at that point so there was there was that you know some shady stuff going on around that too absolutely. wasn't they had like what, a legal drop box or something like that where they try to play some confusing interference with people who are going to be voting in this um, yeah the uh the intercept um i don't know if it was ken klippenstein on the actual original report r- original reporting i could be wrong but the intercept did release uh some documents the other day that they had internal documents that they got from fedex i believe it was mm-hmm. who was setting up yep. the the dropbox for voting just basically proving that amazon broke the law by uh uh trying to specifically place the box in a place where they were able to put supervisory staff to, you know, intimidate people. It's just, you know, little things, not in my opinion, something that would ultimately sway the vote. Like you walking up to go cast your ballot to unionize or not, whether your manager or a bunch of managers are standing there, isn't going to be it. The real, uh, uh, you know, propagandic push from Amazon, in my opinion, was just, you know, the weeks long, uh, you know, anti-unionization videos. Mm-hmm. They were forcing people to watch as part of their work. You know, a, a ton of things that uh, you know, we discussed it on earlier podcasts that the PRO Act would uh, outlaw, which mm-hmm. should be pretty basic. Like, you know, you you I, I've, I've been in a union before. I was a four or five year long uh, union member. It really is shocking to hear some of the things that are legal that mm-hmm. they can do, you know, when people are trying to form unions and just the level of anti-union propaganda 
uh, that was launched by Amazon executives. And basically, you know, the, the entire right wing, too, there was quite a bit of media. There was a big media media ecosphere going on with it yeah. all, too, that I, I wasn't really that surprised that this vote went that way. And I have other reasons, too. But yeah. And I think, you know, we were talking about it offline is, you know, there was a big you know, microscope put on this in terms of the labor movement around some some employers like Amazon. I know you mentioned to me that Walmart doesn't also have a, a unionized labor force. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder off the back of this, you know, I, I undoubtedly think we're going to see, you know, a bigger push towards, um, you know, some tightening of labor laws in general. And I think also, you know, just kind of as a, a byproduct of uh, the coronavirus and the pandemic, you're going to have, uh, you know, labor movements built off, not built off, but be- basically feeding from what we're seeing through the pandemic and how people have worked and and kind of the strains of what they used to work at when they'd have to, you know, people putting in 80, 90 hours. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see some change about that as well. And, um, you know, something like this, which obviously got a lot of attention the last two, three weeks, you had Amazon execs going on, Twitter doing these weird, like... <laughs> Twitter ramblings were getting called out by Democratic politicians as well. They were calling out senators themselves, too. Yeah, it was really. Yeah, this one executive, I can't remember his name. He had this weird like line of attack on Bernie where it was like, oh, well, we actually pay our workers $15 an hour, Bernie. Like, you know, you say you want that to be the policy, but we actually do it. What have you done? And it's like, dude, he pressured you and made you do that. Right. Like, how? It's insane. It's just yeah. like the right wingers who yeah. were like claiming, uh, uh, you know, uh, credit for the stimulus package. Right. It's like, oh, oh, look, look at this great thing. It's like you literally had nothing to do with it. Yeah. You were pressured into doing it, you know. Yep. Just shameless. Absolutely shameless. And, you know, because like Bernie did the same thing with a couple other companies. Uh, Disney, per, for example, mm-hmm. I think it was in 2018. He was calling them out individually, the company, the CEO. Same thing. They raised their wages because there was a giant pressure campaign. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what did they do? They shut up about it after. Yep. Like, that's what you should do. Don't don't try to enter the arena where you're trying to dunk back on, you know, politicians. And stuff. It's only you're only going to lose. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, Bernie Sanders is still the most popular politician in the country. Wasn't it Nina Turner who called him back out after? Too? Yeah. After he said that, Nina Turner was like, hold on a second. And then just like hit him with the realness. Yeah. It's just insane. Like these people still don't realize like, no, the majority of the country hates people like you. Mm-hmm. Like specifically like executives going on Twitter with their own handle. Mm-hmm. Not even like tweeting from the Amazon account or yep. whatever. Like you're, you guys still don't get it. Like <laughs> everyone hates you. Yeah. Like, I, what do you think you're? You're gonna hop in the ring with Bernie mm-hmm. <laughs> on Twitter? Yeah, <laughs> just a bad idea. But absolutely. But no, like to expand on what I was saying earlier, you know, just to button up my feeling on this is, um, you know, there was a ton of coverage. There was a ton of media coverage. The left wing pods, podosphereus, uh, uh, podcast sphere had a ton of uh, uh, labor organizers that were involved in this drive on. There was a big leftward push to expand the media presence over this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously Amazon had their counter swings. Donald Glover visited the state. Yep. Yep. Killer Mike went down there with Bernie and them. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a big push. But Marco Rubio. <laughs> ultimately, when we talk about these things like unionization or, you know, people's willingness to, you know, risk their livelihood a little bit for things because, you know, and that, that's a reality that exists here because mm-hmm. that that's why I was never that optimistic about it because at the end of the day, when you have a company as big as Amazon, it's, it's nothing to them to just close that plant. 
mm-hmm. which is the it's that's the final that's the nuclear option, folks. Yep. Uh, you know, I don't know how much some people might or might not know about labor history in this country, but in recent, you know, in modernity. That's the response for a lot of companies mm-hmm. where, you know, oh, I'm going to unionize. Um, I forget what what media company did that just happened in. I think it was uh, BuzzFeed. Uh, that was HuffPost. It was, Huff, it was HuffPost, HuffPost Canada. Was, yeah, was they, acquired by BuzzFeed, right? Right. But they unionized and then literally got vaporized like a week later. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just a, it's just the it's most a reality. Cur- yeah. uh, uh, recent example I can think of. But that's a reality. And people, um, you know, the, the people who voted in this, not to mention all the anti-union propaganda and all that stuff, when people are so – work is so precarious, especially when you're talking about some of these places like Alabama – you know, people have a good job and don't want to rock the boat. It's yeah. not it's not that surprising. You know, yeah. it, it was the same way in my union. Uh, you know, I used to work at SI Group and which was a union shop. Uh, you know, we joined the Teamsters and it was the same way. There'd be a lot of people who were, you know, tentative. They they didn't want to push the issues too hard yeah. because they always knew that's a reality. You know, corporate can just be like, all right, we'll see you later. You're all, all fired. Right. The plane's Drawing closed. attention to yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and that's a reality that you don't know people's circumstances and it's 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 a problem same thing you see with teacher unions too same same dynamic where it sort of takes a certain level of radicalization around uh you know even people who are already in unions let alone unionizing yeah to be able to be willing to risk that reality that they could lose their job their their job could be evaporated overnight and you know the it looks like kind of the tactics from amazon and specifically what you were saying as people were kind of worried about rocking the boat and losing that job in such a precarious market mm-hmm. and situation as right now may have paid off for them. But I think you're going to see more runs at this. Oh, absolutely. There's already, uh, I forget the other cities, but there's other unionization drives beginning in other and I think, warehouses. So. And I think, you know, uh, you know, no offense to Alabama, but, it, you know, I think, you know, in other areas and other warehouses, you may see a very closer run, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, election on it than or a vote on it than what we saw here but we'll see um so that was the first one i think it was you know we had to touch on it just because it was a, a fresh news hit and you know it was something that kind of dominated uh, at least the the labor conversation in the last week or so mm-hmm. um so the second uh quick hit we're going to touch on is uh recently joe biden was it yesterday or today um Tease us a little bit with uh, the budget for 2022. Uh, most notably, uh, one of what pops out to us, I think, is the uh, he's increased the defense budget by 13 billion. What was the actual number, Ramona? 700 and- 753 billion is so- is the number he came out for the, in total for the Pentagon budget. So, I mean, 13 billion more on defense than Trump, uh, as. Uh, Mark Pocan, the, the representative uh, in, in government, said, is not building back better. No, absolutely um, not. And I know you've probably gathered it from, you know, the, the 10 episodes that we're now done on this podcast. If anything, we want to see the defense budget being cut significantly, you know, cut the overseas contingency operations, you know, cut the funding to, you know, all these different countries where you don't you don't really need to be involved in. Stop buying stupid fucking jets and <laughs> not even buying them. Stop paying for the RV. Yeah, like one point and- seven trillion for the F thirty five. Thirty billion for the literal combat ship program for boats that don't work. Are like, you really even buying anything if it never worked in the first place? Right. I mean- <laughs> and you know that 
and to kind of you know look at it from the point of you know we always hear when you know Joe Biden is doing you know the the stimulus package or the infrastructure bill you'll hear people saying oh look at this spending gone wild you don't hear a peep when people are talking about spending money on things like that so you know it it's not the most encouraging um part of of the budget spent that is being put out there but and and again a good point on this is that he's or they're saying the Biden government is saying that this is in a retaliation, I guess, to the kind of escalations from countries like China and Russia. Right. And the thing is, like the important context there, folks, like read in between the lines, like our 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 military industrial complex, the leaders of our military and whoever the executive is at the time, it doesn't matter if it's Trump, Obama, Biden. They will use that. That's propaganda right there. That That yep. is propaganda saying, oh, it's it's retaliatory. Just like another country increasing their spending on military is viewed as an offensive act by the U.S. military, which let's put these numbers in context. Last year's military spending for America was seven hundred and thirty one billion dollars in total. Right. The next country was China at two hundred and sixty one billion. So they've increased. uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it's increased some by some percentage. Mm -hmm. And then you have India, which is loosely an American ally uh, in the region at seventy one billion. And then Russia at sixty five billion. So what we're still talking about is we're still spending more than the next 10 countries here uh, combined uh, on the list for top 10 military yeah. spending in the world. And uh, I referred to the Fareed Zakaria uh, breakdown of this, of his uh, um, his attack on the military industrial complex on CNN. I recommend everybody go listen to that because uh, we don't have time to break it all down right now, but he mm-hmm. did a phenomenal job of getting into it. And he mentioned, he had a very salient point that he mentioned in it where he said that America has sort of situated their military spending based off what Great Britain used to do when they were at the peak of their empire, which was a two to one strategy. They wanted to make sure that they had um, two times more military spending than the next two naval forces in the world. That was their that was their strategy. America's put that on steroids. So, yeah, uh, again, everybody go watch that Fareed Zakaria clip. Very, very good. I would love to do a segment on that at some point. But, you know, we're just doing a quick hit here to drop on uh, Biden's suggested increase to Pentagon spending. And, you know, it's again, this isn't even like this is just it's so frustrating to watch this just be the the regular like, you know, in the zeitgeist thing where, you know, the pre- any whoever the president is, like I said, it doesn't matter. Just it's like, oh, yep, uh, our spending military spending is going to increase again this year just with regularity. I'm pretty sure for my entire lifetime, I'm 30 years old. It's only gone up. It's never flattened. It's never plateaued. It's never been reduced. Mm-hmm. It's just a continuous uh, escalation. And again, to use their term escalation, um, which is ridiculous because it's like we have over 300 military bases around the world, right? I don't really have too much of an issue with the foreign aid because you can you can flex that. Like there's a bunch of different ways that uh, military aid that's pre uh, um, like prearranged ahead of time can be flexed in any way. You could give Yemen some of the military aid money that you just have in the general <laughs> kitty and be like, OK, here's money for like food and medicine because right. you're, you're technically at part war. of the blockade. Yeah. Right. But and we won't do that. But yeah. the, my whole point is like I don't have an issue with the, the, um, the aid. It's just for our own quote-unquote defense, which when was the last time America was attacked? Like, 9-11. And even if that was the case, like, uh, you know, where military spending would have influenced that, no, it still doesn't, 
it's still just, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. No. You have this presence all around the world. You're spending all this money. And again, but then when, when we come back to us having conversations around, you know, uh, funding universal pre-K or expanding Medicare or any of this shit, yeah. it's always, oh, where are you going to get the money? Where are you going to get the money? We just have like 30, 40 billion dollar increases to military spending every year habitually. It's an extremely bipartisan thing. Those votes pass with no fucking issue. Right. You have a handful of people like Bernie Sanders and Rand uh, other randos in the Progressive Caucus. And sometimes you get some principled uh, libertarians who just don't like spending, period, mm -hmm. like Rand Paul, who will vote against it. But for the most part, these things pass with soaring numbers right. in our Congress. And you know what's a, an important point to make is this is, uh, you know, a, a significant increase, but it's also on the back of, you know, things where America is, is supposed to be actually pulling troops out of the Middle East. Like they're supposed to be withdrawing from Afghanistan. They're withdrawing from Iraq. So where, where, like... Where is this going to go to? What is it going towards? You know, like I, I mentioned, you're spending $1.5 trillion on jets that never took off. Right. You know, boats that never fucking went, went anywhere. Like, again, there's, we want to talk about mis misappropriation of funding. It's, it's, it's military spending. Right. And the most frustrating thing for me, too, is like, put it in context. Let's match this up against, um, for example, Biden unveiled this infrastructure bill we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Republicans tore it to, part, to pieces like, oh, this thing's not infrastructure. This thing's not infrastructure. Okay. We never do that with the defense budget. It's just like, this is the number. We're all going to agree on it. Yep. They're not forced to be like, oh, this is what we're spending on. They're never they're never forced to do that. Like they, they literally don't even have to say like, oh, we're going to reinforce, um, you know, for example, NATO anti-ballistic systems around Russia, which Russia surrounded by, by the way, folks, if you yep. didn't know that, uh, which was a ton of what Obama's military spending went towards. But like they don't even have to earmark it and say like, oh, it's for this infrastructural thing. It's just like, oh, here's almost a trillion dollars that we're just going to spend indiscriminately because the Pentagon isn't accountable to the American people. They don't have to explain anything. We just get to look at the receipts when they're done spending. Yeah. So that's just a giant issue to me. And then not to mention when the Pentagon actually was audited, they're, they're, uh, the intricacy and the just insane sclerotic level at which they spend and don't keep their books straight – was so crazy that independent auditors looked into Pentagon spending and literally professionals mm -hmm. couldn't even figure out their books uh, the last time the Pentagon was actually audited. Yeah. So, you know, just keep that in perspective. Everyone complains about spending for things for us here at home. But then when it comes to us, you know, funding uh, military contractors to create bombs, planes, uh, reinforcements uh, uh, of infrastructure, military bases, all this kind of shit around the world, no, but no one bats an eye. It's a yes vote overwhelming majority in congress yep just and disgusting yeah and you know what we could do a whole bloody 10 episodes on the military industrial complex but again this is just another another instance of it that you know you don't really you know i wasn't i wasn't uh, optimistic that it was going to change under a joe biden presidency no no it definitely would have changed under a bernie sanders presidency sure because i mean that's stuff that he constantly talks about he has a history of voting against those things. Um, that, but was, yeah. that was arguably what he was the biggest threat to was the healthcare industries and uh, the military industrial complex. Yep. And know. Wall Street, yeah. That's why there was a full court press on not allowing him to fucking win. Yeah, and which is, again, it's another mechanism of of big money, essentially. It's it's another, another symptom. Mm -hmm. All right, so I think that's the first two quick hits. Um, so the last quick hit is something that... You know, it, it's rather personal to me. I'll try my best to 
with this, just kind of explain the facts, the reasons why, and we can get into some speculation as well with this because, you know, there's a lot of things at play. Um, so it's a, it's around the you know seven days straight now of writing in in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, it also happens to be the uh, anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which happened in 1998. Today is is the anniversary of that. And for those who don't know, um, Northern Ireland was partitioned from the Republic of Ireland when Ireland got its independence from the UK. So essentially what that meant was Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, where I'm from, the green, white, and orange flag, that it consists of, you know, 32 counties. The partition part, which was Northern Ireland, which would remain with Great Britain, that was 1921. And now just for context too, so me to verify what I understand about what I read about it, that was what the Republic, uh, the Irish Civil War was fought over was the the treaty yeah. Uh, that they after um, post World War One, yeah, where they were trying to say that oh Ireland is an independent country, but it's still in the British Empire, right? That was what the main purpose that the Civil War was fought over. Well, you right? had free staters who wanted to be free from that, and then you wanted to have people who wanted complete unification, right? Um, and there's a lot of complexities as this played out throughout the years, but through the the eighties and early nineties, you know, it was about a thirty year war that took place in Northern Ireland, um, which was known as the Troubles. Mm-hmm. And from there, yeah, I think you had close to nearly four thousand people die from that. Civilians, you know, I'm not talking about actual military people. You know, some some police, um, and you know, there was magically a peace deal um, in 1998. The the Good Friday Agreement, which was brokered by Senator George Mitchell who was a, a main Democrat, I believe. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of players involved in it. And the kind of history of Northern Ireland, right? So you have, it's made up of majority unionists, which would be the Conservative Party, which would be, you know, loyal to the Crown, let's say. So the DUP? Yep, it'd be the DUP. Okay. It would be their leading party. Um, and they have a, there's a large uh, minority of nationalists, and nationalists would be people who are want to return to the Republic, want to unify the country. Mm-hmm. Um, Irish nationals don't see themselves as British. You know, there's a clear distinction between the two. You know, Irish nationalists would never hold a British flag, uh, a Union Jack. You know, we we call it the butcher's apron mm-hmm. just because of all the blood that was shed under that flag's name. So the, so the good Republicans, folks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and it, it also, though, it creates a, a different dynamic for unionists in Northern Ireland because they're they're literally, they're, they see themselves as English, part of the United Kingdom, but they're also separated by an ocean and, blo- you know, kind of hemmed in by the Republic. But they're very, very proud people. They, you know, they have their, what's called an orange march where they have parade season where they commemorate, you know, the Battle of the Wine, William of Orange. I'm not going to get into all, because like I said, there's a lot of history here, 800 plus years. Um, But essentially, the Good Friday Agreement was a miracle that was brought about. Now, you have some people who disagree with it because from the Good Friday Agreement, what that happened was they took down the border between Southern and the North of Ireland. They allowed Irish Republicans or nationalists to have an Irish passport, see themselves as Irish, they allowed, you know, the the unionists to have a British passport, see themselves as British. There's a, there was another number of other things, you know, they let prisoners out and, 
you know, agreements around it. Essentially, the two main political parties who were involved in it at the time, they both won the Nobel Peace Prize from this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, where this really, this had a whole generation who've grown up since 1998 who had a relatively peaceful Northern Ireland for the first time in a long, long while. So fast forward to Brexit. And I don't know if anybody, you know, was was kind of following, but during Brexit, one of the main sticking points with the negotiation was, you heard it a lot, you call it the hard border, you know, the Northern Ireland, you know, situation within Brexit. And the reason why it was kind of on, a, you know, tender hooks was because, you know, with with Brexit, it obviously is, is Britain removing themselves from the, the European Union. They, they, nobody, neither unionists or... Uh, nationalists wanted to see a hard border return because it brings back a lot of heartache, a lot of bloodshed, uh, just bad memories. We knew it was going to, you know, go down that road. Now, with what has happened after Brexit, you have the dynamic now of, you know, they still need to, you know, check, you know, certain ship ships that come in, make sure that the, you know, the excise is paid because you're dealing with a different uh, you know, set up now economically. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the, some of the unionists now are saying that like, okay, the, the, we feel abandoned by the United Kingdom. They've, they've been treated differently than the rest of the UK, which is, is a reality, but it's also, you know, Northern Ireland or Ulster unanimously voted to not leave the not not leave uh, the European Union mm-hmm. for these reasons, right? They, you know, this was a, a essentially always going to happen, and a lot of people said that. And I think, you know, you look at Boris Johnson and his ambition to rise to be prime minister, you know, and 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 the Tories in general, they were abandoning Northern Ireland by even having Brexit. You know, this this was sure. something that they always kind of knew was going to happen, and you you see. You know, the EU was, is not responsible for what's happening right now. You know, they, that was one of their main negotiation points was they, there has to be certain measures in place. And Britain are completely flouting those now and it's creating this tension. So the culmination of, of all this is, you know, loyalist paramilitaries, which are your UDA, UVF, Red Hand Commando, they're loyalist groups. They're basically who would be in part of the sectarian violence that has been going on for so many years. Mm-hmm. They'd be in direct conflict with like your IRA. And don't even get me started. There's many factions of, of Irish Republicans as well. So you have the IRA, you have the PIRA, the CIRA, and they all have different viewpoints on what they see as United Ireland, as well as the means to get there. Like I said, this is a quick hit, but I'm trying to get through it as much as I can here. Parliamentary folks. Yeah. Beautiful and, thing. And like I said, the violence is unfolding at a time where the political sphere over there, like post-Brexit, the Irish Sea Trade border, the fallout from all that is just, it's its heightened and heightened. And, you know, Brexit definitely plays a part with this, but there's also that big disenfranchisement from, you know, people who are fed up, and I'm talking about unionists, people who are fed up, they feel like they've been neglected. But there's also, there is a big uh, drug war the loyalist paramilitary gangs had like a civil war, I'd say, I want to say it was about three or four years ago because they controlled a lot of the drug trade there. Mm-hmm. And there's rumors that a lot of, you know, kind of the pushback and, and 
what's going on right now is because drugs coming in now are getting far more scrutiny. Right. Because right. The, the the kind of trade border is the IRC and not, you know. Yeah. Things have changed with that. And, that. and that's where from just my shallow understanding of what I've done on the reading for it, obviously you have all the background mm-hmm. uh, uh, knowledge on it. It seems like that's one of the main uh, the, the main players in this violence that you're about to get into from the last week or so yep. is largely due to these gangs, right? Right, yeah. And, you know, actually the PSNI, which is the police force if, of Northern Ireland, um, used to be called the RUC, but after the good, which was the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which was in cahoots with loyalist paramilitaries for years and years and years. There's been a number of investigations where the British Army were in cahoots. There's been a, just a lot of shitty stuff um, that, again, I'm not going to get into because it doesn't really pertain to what's happening right now. Long story short, this last six or seven days. You have what I kind of talked about with the disenfranchisement of, you know, the unionists in the in Northern Ireland. On top of that, there was uh, a funeral of a notable Irish Republican man um, uh, by the name of Story, where you had top ranking um, Irish Republican um, politicians from Sinn Féin, which would be the leading Republican party there. Um, they had 12 of their high ranking uh, politicians went to it. And the police force have not prosecuted or, or done anything to the people who went to that funeral. Which now, now that was due to coronavirus. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, prosecution for that. Right? Yes, um, which you know, take that as you may. Uh, you know, I don't. I think that was just another you know flame to the fire for the unionists. Yeah, it's so. It's like what we said just to call back to last week, like or two weeks ago. Where it's so incredible to see like European countries like actually using that as a political football not a political football because they're actually doing it like with the sarah everard uh situation Mm -hmm. like enforcing coronavirus uh (laughs) regulations yeah around funerals you know that's incredible yeah because there hasn't been a single story like that like we've always heard it like america you're uh like for example in new york where we are where it's like oh you're only supposed to have this many people at a funeral right i'm sure people have broken that and I just don't think police are enforcing it. Yeah, and I think... Seems like a very political thing in Europe. This was high profile too. And I think what really irks them is that it was high profile. You had leading members of Sinn Féin there and still nothing came about of it. Which, again, besides the point of what's going on right now, I think that was just another, you know, little bullet for their arsenal, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So over the last week in mainly... Loyalists and unionist parts of, you know, Derry, Antrim, Armagh, which are all, all places in the North Belfast. Um, and an interesting dynamic as well, I will say, is that in each of these cities, there's a notable divided line between unionists and nationalists. Yeah. And when I say divided line, there's literally walls that divide the city. Yeah, the articles I was reading said there was like peace a wall. peace line. Or peace <laughs> wall. Yeah. They're, they're in a number of cities um, and the gates close on those at a certain time. Holy shit. Um, and, you know, all of this is, is you know, super worrying because obviously the hard work of the Good Friday Agreement was kind of a miracle that that ever came about. I mean, you had some horrific times for people Um that they had to deal with. And a lot of people that are getting kind of caught up in this in the communities where this violence is going on right now, they don't want to go back to that time. Sure. They don't. Um, And I think the unionists know that with Brexit, 
that if there was to be a border poll right now about reunification, they would lose it because, you know, there's so much mobility that uh, that's available through, through being a, an EU member, right? Right. Freedom of travel, all these different things that you, uh, they're kind of pigeonholed into this, you know, small part of, of an already small island. Mm-hmm. You already feel like, you know, you're kind of being neglected by, by London and, and Great Britain. But right now, you know, the, the escalating intention, it's, it's a lot of young people. Like you know, you've seen people as young as 14 or 15. I've seen videos where older people like in their thirties and forties yelling at these rioters, telling them to go to the, go to the wall, like in, in terms of like, go and increase it more. You right. know I mean? And you know, some of the violence there's petrol bombings. Nobody has died yet. I think there's been, you know, f- I have the number here. I think it's 40 plus, uh, 40 plus police have been injured so far. I saw somebody get hit with a Molotov cocktail and go on fire, but I don't think he died. I think it's up to 55 from the updated article I read last night. 55 55? police. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, did you see the bus? Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. And again, you like you you have you have people walking their dogs. Like and how ingrained the violence had been for those people growing up. Um you know, you'd people just like walking by and not even caring. So here, I want to ask you a contextual question. So in the in London in Westminster, yeah, are there actually like um, Tory politicians that are still pushing pro Brexit? Because I I haven't yeah. like I remember yeah. I remember when it first was like an issue and they were obviously using that as like a political launching pad because there were elections and stuff like that. Yeah, going on. I mean they've hitched their wagon to it now, so they they're still to. pushing it. Because ha- even I mean, Boris sounds pretty muted on it. It doesn't really sound like. I mean, it's already taken place. It's, it's already it's already it's already Brexit. You know, so the, they've already hitched their wagon to it. It was his, it was his, you know, it was his thing. He was the guy who had the campaign on the side of bus, on a, on the bus where the NHS, the National Health Service could save, you know, X amount of money, which all was a lie. Right. It, it, that was the most rushed, most important vote that country will ever have to make that changed people's lives, not only on their island, because I think for the most part, people in Great Britain, meaning, you know, over there. Mm-hmm not in Northern Ireland, they could care less if Northern Ireland was part of Great Britain anymore. Right. I mean, it, at this point, it doesn't really matter, I feel like, to them. Now, in terms of the island of Ireland unifying, that would be tremendous. Just from a personal standpoint, I'd love to see that happen. Um, and the reality is that, and I talked to you, it's funny because I talked to you a couple of weeks ago and I sent you an article mm-hmm. about what what unification could possibly look like for the island of Ireland and the people in the north. And, you know, the reality of that is, you know, they they have a culture up there that is born out of that struggle, right? But I think for you know, a lot of people, it's been peaceful since 1998. There's been, you know, they see themselves as people from the north of Ireland. You know what I mean? There's, there's almost... Uh, not a camaraderie because you still have, but you have you have people, you know, mingling within the Protestant and Catholic neighborhoods. And, you know, I'd say 90% of these people don't go to mass, you know what I mean? Right. But it's all around that, you know, the sectarian violence has been around you being a Catholic, me being a Protestant, which all seems kind of silly now because it's again tied to what Britain used to be. Um, but I'll say, you know, if the the worst things that could happen right now is basically this is out undoing all the work that the Good Friday Agreement did, 
So basically all the miracle work to make that even a possibility is potentially going up in smoke. You have, you know, loyalist paramilitaries could probably increase their movements again because again, you know, their their vested interest is no longer just, you know, being a unionist. It's it's running guns, it's running drugs. Um, and then you also have, you know, young kids who are involved. Like I said, 14, 15 year olds. It's like a 12 year old got arrested. The other 12 year old. <laughs> they're the ones throwing these Molotov cocktails blindly across the walls. You know, their lives could be changed in terms of their, the rest of their lives. You, you know, you get kill somebody, you do whatever. It's just a, such a precarious situation right now. It'd be interesting to see, you know, the next couple of days how it kind of plays out because it took Boris Johnson like four or five days to even comment on the yeah, issue. I saw that. It was really weird. I saw Biden actually, uh, you know, once again, playing up his, his par- partial Irish roots. Uh, it definitely seems like, you know, he, he made a couple statements like pro unification and how he was, you know, calling for an end to the violence. And I just, I just, it's just interesting to see the, cause like what you said before, the one Senator that helped broker yeah. the deal in the first place, like it'd be interesting to see like, what role America takes in this? Because it's like, you know, that's Ireland, UK at large. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a top ally of America. Like you, you would hope to see a little more, uh, you know, I don't want to say pressure, but just attention given to this rather than like, oh, this fuckery in the Middle East, you know, like things that are right actually I, important. You know, uh, what is it? Like, I think like 20 something percent of Ireland's trade is to America. Like it's very... Yeah very important trade relationship yeah you know? and i mean for the for the republic of ireland where i'm from obviously we're independent from the uk um right and you know the 90 of of people i i believe in the republic of ireland would love to see the unification of the entire ireland we just make it easier for honestly it would make it easier for all parties you know and i don't know how it would work in terms of you know the the unionists that are already there you know maybe let them keep and and let anybody who was born maybe there's some sort of special uh, dispensation for them mm-hmm. that if you want to continue to call yourself a union you can you know you can continue to get your British passport by birthright or whatever I don't know I don't have those answers all I know is Brexit has brought a uh, you know increased amount of scrutiny scrutiny to to the Good Friday Agreement because of trade and economic factors based right. off of all this and and the border and how things just need to work. You have people who live in in the north of Ireland who work in southern Ireland. If a hard border comes in there, you know, forget about it. You don't want to see the British army back on the streets. You know, I think they're firing rubber bullets now. And I will say, you know, all the reports I've been reading, it's been mainly loyalist activity. But I think, you know, there's been a lot of community activists in both, you know, communities talking about, you know, this is not the way the DUP, who are notably just, they're very religious. Think of like, think of like the Tea Party with, you know, added religion into the, the mix. Like Huckabee. Or- yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, just like weird. And, and they push weird agendas. Um, they're just archaic. Their most notable, uh, their most notable politician was a, a man called the Reverend Ian Paisley. Mm-hmm. And he's just a horrific individual. His son, I, I think, is their second in command to of, of the DUP. But besides the point that, like I said, there's a lot of history here. And for those people who are listening in Ireland, you'll be aware of it. But for Americans, you know, you've probably heard of the troubles or, or you know, the, the war that had went on in, in Northern and Southern Ireland for a while. But 
this is bringing things back up to the surface. I will say that, you know, Boris Johnson wants to be remembered as this, you know, Churchillian type of leader. <laughs> he's not going to be remembered for that. What he's going to no. be remembered for is his buffoonery for bringing the UK as, you know, any sort of dynasty, or not even dynasty, any sort of empire that it was left, meaning that it had Scotland, it had Wales, it had Northern Ireland. Scotland are probably going to have another independence vote within yep. the next five to ten years. Mm -hmm. There's no mistake in that Ireland is going to have a uh, Northern Ireland is going to have a border poll. And by all metrics and measurements that I'm seeing, you know, a lot of people are c confident that it, the border poll will show that they want to unify. So I have a quick question. So, uh, again, from what I read, like, so Ulster as a province, part of Ulster is within uh, the, the the Republic of Ireland, right? Yeah. So, so there's, there's six counties. So are there, as far as the democratic processes go... Can the can, can that province vote? Yeah, so to to, to leave the UK itself the without having to involve the UK. So this is where it, yes. So yes and no. So the provinces of Ireland are Ulster, Leinster, Munster, and Connacht. Mm -hmm. Ulster would in, in, incorporates the majority of Northern Ireland, bar a few counties. The western who, slice. Yeah, kind of western and, and some one of the southern. Um, parts of it. And that was just how it was done during partition. And it was basically around the the Protestant populations from that plantation. Right. Um, and it, it was just basically demographics that made it such. Provinces don't really matter when it comes to actual um, electoral voting. Yeah, it's, right. it's nothing oh, to do with okay. the electoral districts. All right. Um, and the reason being is that like just the dynamic of having an island that size, the way you break up provinces, is just, it's what it is at that point. So that has no, it doesn't really play into it. Okay. Uh, as well as after, you know, partition, you, you still had plenty of Irish people up there who are Ulstermen. I mean, even, even unionists are Ulstermen, you know what I mean? They're Ulster. Right, right. Uh, which is funny because it's. It's like an Irish word and you want to be part of it. It's just a lot of complexities there that we don't have enough time in the day to get into. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to it's gonna continue to progress. Uh, hopefully not the, the violence. Um, there's a lot of ineptitude. They've handled a lot of issues poorly, um, i.e. the coronavirus. Um, they had issues with the, you know, the DUP have had issues with, you know, abortion. And, you know, one of the ways that the only ways that Boris Johnson could form a government was to actually, you know, set up a power sharing uh, agreement with members of the DUP, which mm -hmm. are like ghouls. And that just shows you how far removed they were from actually being in a position of strength, the Tories. Um, right. You know, my prediction is that, you know, you know, the... <laughs> Like I said, the parade season is coming up. Undoubtedly, there's going to be some violence at that, unfortunately, because of this. And and parade season there normally is because, you know, orange men, they're called. They wear like this orange sash. They drum and, and beat themselves through, you know, Catholic neighborhoods, nationalist neighborhoods. And they've gone down fairly peacefully, I would say, over the last, you know, five, ten years. But this has brought out that same, you know, undertones of of sectarian violence that you know are not even undertones anymore they're there um my hope is that you know there there's going to be something coming about hopefully between the dup 
and uh, Sinn Féin, where they at least show a united front and for the cause of peace. But uh, yeah, I don't. And the PSNI, which is like I said, the the police force uh, of Northern Ireland, they said that it wasn't loyalist paramilitaries who were leading this uh, these protests. But which I don't believe. I think you know from the few videos that I saw, they were. I believe that they're, you know, using the kids as a front to, you know, increase the violence and then get stuff done. But it'll be interesting to look out. I, I've certainly been keeping a key eye on it. Um, UK have been very quiet on it for the most part. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really all it stemmed from a stupid Brexit decision in the first place. Right. So it's just a shame. Nobody's died so far. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take that and... Uh, there was was it six six days in a row. I haven't heard or checked yet if there was more violence today, but um, yeah, it, it's worth looking into. There's a ton of stuff online for anybody who wants to learn more about you know the history of Ireland, Northern Ireland, Great Britain. Um, like like I said, we don't have enough time in the data. Yeah, all you Americans the, t- brush, the up, brush up on your foreign policy. It's, yeah, it's good reading, good knowledge. Yep, on Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> see i was pretty uh was pretty impartial on that yeah yeah no i was impressed. it took all took all my power not to i was impressed at how reserved you were you know you know me i am an ideologue folks i don't hide it uh you, you were a better man than i uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh let's let's get to the headliner here um today's second uh, you know second main topic is going to be the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, we had a ton of coverage of it last week. Um, there was some stunning testimony, I would argue, medical testimony this week. Um, and I, I don't think there's an actual... It looks like this is going to stretch on a little longer. Yeah, longer than I thought, this actually. Is, it was yeah, gonna- I, w- I thought that this was going to be done, like, last week when it first started, like, you know, probably, like, midweek this week. But yeah. I don't know. You know, some trials just take a long time and... I think that this is a big part of it is because I don't want to call this a landmark case, but, you know, uh, because, you know, other police have been prosecuted in the years past, but it nothing, certainly nothing as high profile as this. Obviously, everyone knows that George Floyd's death, uh, you know, the, I would argue the murder by Derek Chauvin, um, you know, set the country on fire last year. Sure. So this is, you know, this is sort of like this is like our OJ trial of this decade. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anything's going to come come close to top in this, just, mm. you know, creeping into this decade. But, um, so yeah, so we have Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer has been charged with second degree murder and second degree manslaughter in George Floyd's death. Uh, Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for an updated now nine minutes and 23 seconds that, uh, raised the, raised the ceiling a little bit. I believe it was like eight minutes yeah. and something is what the initial report was last year. And, uh, as we've gotten, uh, more video evidence has been released, and this has actually been scrutinized a lot more closely because of the trial and, you know, the precise nature of which those require. Mm-hmm. Um, that's bumped up a little bit. So so I just want to start off with providing some context for before we start getting into actual testimony here. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I mentioned before, obviously the country was set ablaze by uh George Floyd's murder, Minneapolis especially, and it spiraled throughout the rest of the country. And, you know, me and you talked about this a lot, and this was something that we kind of like always hovered around and talked about because Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, that was sort of like the kickoff to the 
there was so much bottled up political angst and you know just I, I, culmination of culmination of, things, of it yeah. and, and, and a lot of confusion too mm-hmm. that i think that you know george floyd's murder was a catalyst for you know what i mean like yep. even for people who weren't necessarily you know in in the streets explicitly because of his death that i think that it it, it certainly served as it was a spearhead for people where the, the 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 shaft of the spear was amalgamated from a bunch of different other well issues. wasn't Ahmad arbery like right around the wasn't it like a two weeks or maybe even a week before yeah but i'm saying even in like in the larger psychological context where you know that happened in the summer of 2020 and that was after you know a significant number of states and major cities had been locked down for a few months yeah. at that point. Yeah. There was a lot of questions still in the air. A ton of people were unemployed. Mm-hmm. There was confusion around what was going to happen. Perfect storm. Yeah. A lot of, thing, yeah. a lot of precariousness, you know, yeah. uh, and th- this was just something that, you know, <laughs> he was killed. People watched that Minneapolis police department burning yeah. on TV. And I think that that kind of clicked it into place for a lot of people where it's like, you know, they realized like a lot of European countries operate at the basic understanding of that. Oh, there's no one's really in charge or in control here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And people that I think that was a big, a very validating thing for people to realize like, oh, I'm going to go get in the streets. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying like that to condone violence or burning things or any of that, but just, you know. But it the, is a reminder that with the, the power of the people does work. Right. Exactly. And, it, and it's like that, you know, we had Occupy, obviously, that yep. was probably the most uh, recent major like thing that was contentious. You know what I mean? Obviously we have big marches, like women's marches. And when yep. Trump was inaugurated, there was a march, yep. but you know, never anything that was like literal disobedience by a mass population. Yep. And we definitely saw that, but yeah. And other countries do it quite a bit and they're good at it. Very often. Get stuff done. I mean, they raise gas prices in France. They start burning shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. So yeah. So, so last week, the prosecution presented videos never be seen, never seen before by the public that showed Floyd's arrest from various perspectives and its aftermath. And there was one uh, salient angle that I saw um, where, where Chauvin, he approaches his squad car and McMillan, one of the other officers on the scene, can be heard expressing concern over Chauvin's decision to kneel on Floyd's neck. So this is after Floyd's dead. Um, mm-hmm. And this is just... This is just huge to me where uh, after McMillan's heard on the video basically saying to him like, man, I'm on, you know, I'm uncomfortable with that. Basically, you know, paraphrasing mm-hmm. and Chauvin's response was, quote, that's one person's opinion. We got to control this guy. He's a sizable guy. It looks like he was probably on something. So so right there, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to highlight that quote because that was something that we had no knowledge of. Uh, he said at the time a year ago or leaving leading up to this where notice what his last sentence was there. Quote, it looks like he was probably on something. So just the, the, the level at which we've all been steeped in this like police PR talk mm-hmm. and how it's disseminated down to the public, whether it be people who, you know, ardently support police or police themselves, where he immediately after murdering a man and again, uh, you know. I don't even think I have to say allegedly there. Like, that's my opinion. He Mm -hmm. murdered him. He immediately said, oh, it looks like he was on something. As if that's a justification for why you killed a man. As if it wasn't your, it wasn't caused by you. I just, it's fascinating. I just think that's amazing how people can put themselves in a psychological place where they're excusing their own murder of another human right. being. And, and it's fun. And it it's also, amazing. if you l- listen to the wording of it, he's like, he, it looks like he was probably on something, which 
right there and then, you know, when you think of police, you think of them exercising, you know, the law, right, or like, you know, being a, a, an extension of what laws are. Right. But in that instance, he played judge, jury, and executioner mm-hmm. on something that was probably. Right. Right. And it's, you know. But, and for, it's placing a value, a moral value on someone's life because, oh, well, he was on drugs. Right. And <laughs> and it, it's just looking at the footage of the trial and also like the footage from that day. Um, and, you know, there was a ton of stuff thrown out um, right after George Floyd to, to try discredit him, you know, for, you know, as someone who's, you know, battled a drug addiction, which, you know, his his girlfriend came on and talked about it, too. Not an inherently just a black thing. You know what I mean? Sure. His girlfriend was white. But you also have... And all statistics show white people use the drugs at the same rate black folks do. And then you also have, you know, Shaven and and Floyd used to work together. Did you know that? Yeah, really. There was a lot of conspiracies that folded out of that uh, that I thought had some interesting threads. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he knew him or saw him before. At all. Um, but it was interesting, you know, so, so I was researching this and I, I kind of took the, the view of like, I, I looked at obviously the, the trial and stuff, but in the context of this being, and it is kind of a landmark case in that the, <laughs> the evidence as to him killing that man and, and kneeling on his neck for over nine minutes is overwhelming that there was no reason for him to do that. I don't think anybody sane of mind sees that. And says, "Oh, that was justified." Yeah, it was an absolute damn. He had like, his hand in his pocket. He yeah. nonchalant. Um, but it's funny. Just the, I was looking at kind of the history of policing, and I talked to you before. But there was a woman, Anna Thompson, in 1924. She was a, a black woman who was kind of looking at the statistics and the policing of of Philadelphia in 1924. I think the population of black people in Philadelphia was about 7.4 percent. But the amount of black arrests was 24%. And the majority of those arrests were for things like uh, arrested for suspicious character. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So he's saying it looks like he was probably on something. Right. It's like they're looking for something. So, you know, even though that was 1924, how many times, you know, has the police stopped and they're more likely to stop someone just because of the color? And race definitely played a factor in this. And it plays a factor into policing, whether, you know, police as a whole want to take, you know, some ownership of that. And, you know, it, it filters out good cops because it's it's impossible. Like you saw that guy after the fact came up to Shaven McMillan and said it didn't sit right with him what he did. But he still felt so empowered to be able to be on his neck for nine minutes, mm-hmm. over nine minutes with his hand in his pocket, with none of the actual cops Saying enough is enough. Sure. Like that, I can't speak to it as someone who is, you know, has been, you know, vilified or, you know, persecuted for the color of my skin. Um, But just looking at that as a human and looking at the reasons why something like that would happen and just looking at policing in, in America in general, you know, we've had conversations before and continue to have conversations about uh the systematic problems within the police. Um, but it just seems that, you know, this one just happens to be so blatant that I think, I think he'll probably get convicted. I mean, but what's, has but to. what is actually going to change with all, you know, I, I, I think we can still talk about the case, but you know, my question among all this, cause I think he's going to, he's going to, if he doesn't get convicted, I don't know what, 
uh, is going to come about. Like I said last week, it's probably going to be more people taken to the streets. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it looks like the police are incapable of actually, you know, chastising themselves on stuff like this and the systematic problems that it has. Um, I think some of the most harrowing testimony for me was, you know, people who weren't actually on scene and were kind of getting relayed the message, like the, the 911 dispatcher and the yeah. paramedics yeah. who was shocked that he was still on that person's knee. She was, and you know, she had no idea of what actually took place, but just. Yeah, I think, I think her quote was she was looking at the video footage and she thought that her monitor froze. Yeah. Because he hadn't moved off his neck still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you had things during the trial where you had the chief of police came up and spoke. And, you know, I think a case like this is kind of a it's kind of a softball case for police to denounce Shaven's actions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which why I think we have to be very, very careful. And it brings back to the point of, okay, what is actually going to change with regard? I mean, right. Right. Here in Schenectady. Last week, they reinstated the. The chokehold, right? Right. After it was stricken from the uh, the community, uh, you know, uh, uh, board where they were all going over what police use of force Reforms, uh, yeah. policy would be. Yeah. So, I mean, amongst all this and amongst all the, you know, the harrowing testimony and the vivid imagery of, of what happened that day. And, you know, they kind of paint the picture of what happened that day. And, you know, you listen to people speak about him and you, you listen to the prosecution or, or excuse me, Shaven's defense team trying to justify these things. And there's actually no route he can go. Like even the people that they try to paint into a corner are just so matter of fact in what they're saying. Like, what was that one? What was that one dude? He was like, um, he was shouting, he was shouting at the police and he was swearing at the police. Oh at yeah. The here, here. Why don't we just jump right into some yeah, of yeah. Clips Let's play, right the, play so, some of the videos here. So we got, there's a, there was a man there who was an eyewitness. He was there. Uh, you'll see him in all the videos. If you, if you ever have watched the video of the murder of George Floyd, um, there's a man named Donald Williams who was there on scene. He's an eyewitness test, uh, eyewitness, uh, testimony in the, in the, in the, in the trial here. And we're going to, we're going to fire up this clip. Um, that was on, that was last Monday he testified and he said, quote, he looked at me, Williams said, adding that Chauvin stared him dead in the eyes at that point when he was saying, Donald Williams was saying, you killed him. And he says, quote, that's the only time he looked up. So, you know, just to set the stage here for this clip we're about to play where, Chauvin's lawyer is cross-examining Donald Williams, who again was an eyewitness uh, mm-hmm. to the event. Let's play the clip. You called him a tough guy. I did. You called him a real man. I did. You called him such a man. I did. You called him bogus. <laughs> I did. You called him a bum at least 13 times. That's what you counted in the video? That's what I counted. And she got 13. And that was early on, right? It, it, those terms grew more and more angry. Would you agree with that? They grew more and more pleading for life. All right. After you called him a bum 13 times, you called him a f- That's what you heard? Did you say that? Is that what you heard? I'm asking you, sir. I'm pretty Did sure Did you I say did. that? 
You heard that. I'm pretty sure you did. You call him a. If that's what you heard, I'm sure that's I'm what I'm asking did. you, did you say that? If that's what the video recorded, so I did. You called him a bitch. If that's the video you heard from the video? It's a yes or no, sir. If that's what was heard in the video, yes, I did. And at one point, you said that Officer Tao pushed you. That's correct. He, didn't, he put his hand in my chest, is what I said. And you observed Officer Tao push someone else, right? Or feel like you, he pushed someone else? I didn't let him touch anyone else. Do you recall saying, I dare you to touch me like that. I swear I'll slap the f of both of you. Yeah, I did. I meant to. Right. So again, sir, it's fair to say that you grew angrier and angrier. No, I grew professional and professional. I stayed in my body. You can't pay me out to be angry. Just perfect, Oof, perfect, perfect testimony. Perfect testimony where, you know, anyone who's watched trials, you know that the whole job of the defense is when they cross-examine a witness is, you know, you try to make them out to be irrational or, you know, just question their character in general. Mm -hmm. And that gentleman, uh, Derek Donald Williams, nailed it. He nailed it straight yeah. up. He just said, no, I wasn't. You're, you're not going to paint me out to be angry. Yeah. I was stigma of the angry black man. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. I was yeah. I was acting increasingly more and more urgent for my concern for another human's life that mm -hmm. I saw being extinguished in front of me. Yeah. You know, and, and remember, like, I know that we already said it at the beginning, but like, folks, nine minutes and some change. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't take a medical expert to know, like, you're killing someone. And at what, that point. what were they? Has the defense team actually I haven't seen yet? Or what were the reasons for even after he was cuffed to still have his knee on his neck? So here's where we can get into the next part, because this clip that we just played rolls perfectly into what? George Floyd's lawyer's main defenses. So obviously one of the main uh, sticking points whenever there's a police murder of, you know, an individual who possibly had drugs in his system, which we know for a fact that George Floyd did, uh, which we'll get to later. That medical examiner said that it was an insignificant amount of fentanyl in his system that wouldn't have caused uh, the arrhythmia or his low oxygen level. Mm -hmm. But we'll play the clip right here of the angle that George Floyd's lawyer is trying to take to try to establish to the jury as to why he was on his neck for as long as he was. There are people across the street. There are cars stopping, people yelling. There are a, There is a growing crowd and what officers perceive to be a threat. They're called names. Heard them this morning. A fucking bum. They're screaming at him causing the officers to divert their attention from the care of Mr. Floyd to the threat that was growing in front of them. That's his defense. That's one of his, that's the main sticking point because as we know, the toxicology reports don't match up with experts opinions on whether the amount of drugs in his system were directly correlated to his death. So they have to take a second angle where they're saying, Oh, well, he couldn't pay attention to the care of Mr. Floyd because there was a belligerent 
an angry mob forming, which is just a bitch ass excuse to yeah. quote Mr. Uh, Mr. Williams. Such a poor excuse that we literally have. And mind you, this isn't unique. This is like a common refrain for when police end up injuring or killing someone and there's bystanders Mm -hmm. that start recording. This is something that they use in a lot of their laws that they try to pass in a lot of these states where there's some states who've been attempting to make it illegal to record police officers or enable them to arrest people for, which they already do anyway, even without extenuating laws, adding to it. But they'll already arrest people saying that you're interfering with an investigation. Mm -hmm. Um, Just trying to say... Oh, you, you, you oh, these officers were fearing for their lives because the mob that was forming. But the interesting thing is we're in a court of law here, right? This is the argument that the lawyer's making. And it's like, well, the any common sense person, I would hope the jury is thinking this way, is why was there an angry mob? Because they were watching you kill someone. Yeah, talk about escalation. Yeah, I mean, you're not and honestly, Pat, like he said before, I don't envy this guy. Like, you know, I agree. We're a country that has its basis in law. People need to be able to have trials. I mean, I don't really think there was any argument you could make to get out of this murder conviction. But, you know, the guy, that's his best argument he's got. That's the best he's got. I don't know what other angle he could have taken. There really isn't any other angle. Because that's the only thing that's gotten police officers in the past off is he feared for his life. Yeah. Which is an amazing contrast to make, which is like you all have pistols. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're scared, you know. I just, but also d- drop into the f- the the context of all this as well as what they were are trying to arrest him for. He's not been arrested for assault and battery, or there's no no the, uh, there's no um, talk of him having a weapon. He wasn't being belligerent. He wasn't being unruly. Uh, he doesn't have. <sighs> It, it, there wasn't people there specifically with Floyd who were coming at the police. There were people angry because of what Shaven was doing. Right. But it's the same with Eric Garner. They were arresting him for Lucy's, selling Lucy's. Right. Except in this case, Floyd didn't resist arrest. Yeah. He was extremely polite and conciliatory and apologetic. Yeah, but he was big Floyd. He was like a jolly put, guy. Getting put onto the ground in the first place. You know, there there wasn't any call for it. At the end of the day... Regardless of, and you know, I don't, I didn't clip it up, but like you mentioned before, all the p- actual other police that testified as wit, uh, um, expert witnesses, as you know, one of them was a police lieutenant, mm-hmm. one of them was the police, uh, the 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 commissioner, mm-hmm. uh, a ton. I think there was four different cops who testified, and they all said like, no, it was an un, uh, uh, uncalled for use of force. There was no reason for it. Floyd wasn't resisting arrest. He never did at any point. That's been established now mm-hmm. uh, by several other police officers who viewed the tape, uh, Chauvin's own boss. You know, so what are we even talking about here? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I get it. You got to give the due date, you know, the due diligence in court and all this. But like we said before, man, if this doesn't turn out as <laughs> a guilty plea. If anything else but guilty, then I really don't know. And and I can't, I, you know, when we were, talking about having this as a topic i i guess that was the what kind of compelled me to look at it from okay what what could happen with this you mean you saw you know demonstrations after um you know what happened in 2015 uh i forget who was shot excuse me for that but then um, trayvon martin trayvon martin perhaps i know in, in 2017 it was the the kid in chicago what was his name uh 
Aubrey, right? No, no, Aubrey was the one in Atlanta. Oh, Tamir Rice. Tamir Rice was in Cleveland. But I mean, just the fact that we're listing off. Yeah. And a lot of, the majority of these, the police got off, barely reprimanded. Well, everyone we just named the police got off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even... And what, by the way, folks, Tamir Rice, the police pulled up on him, thought he had a gun, he had a toy gun, and literally shot him from their police car. Was he 12, 13? Didn't even get out of the car. He was 15, was he? Uh, He was a teenager, yeah. He was under 16. I can't remember what his exact age was, but literally just, like, opened the door and shot him. Didn't yeah, and didn't it, say a word. You know, there's one of the things, that, as I was, you know, doing doing research into kind of the history of police and and, and kind of the racial dynamic that, that's in involved with all that. There was a famous sociologist, a black sociologist called Kenneth Clark, and he did one of the most famous studies. Um, it was a doll study that he did with um, black kids in the South. Mm-hmm. And he basically asked them, you know, which doll they would like. And then they overwhelmingly picked the white doll. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, it spoke to, and it was used in the the Brown versus Board of Education to speak to, uh, you know, the the self-esteem issue and the inferiority complex at the state. And, you know, everyone kind of gave black people in the United States. Uh, and it was a direct portrayal of how the police treated them when they got their freedom, as well as when they moved north after the Great Migration, as well as many instances afterwards. You know, the, the riots in Chicago, the riots in Watts, the, you know, in L.A., each time it was in reaction to something that happened that never really got uh, that the the state or the police never really got those uh, it, the actual charges brought against him that they needed, mm-hmm. and he was asked. He was called before the Kerner Commission that looked into the uprising during the 1960s, and he said, like what I just said there. He said in 1919, I saw the evidence after the Chicago riot. I saw the evidence after the 1935 riots. I saw the evidence after the 1943 uh, riot in Harlem after the Watts riot in 1965. And what he said is it's kind of like an Alice in Wonderland. Same picture, same analysis, and same inaction. Um, and what he says is, you know, those same conversations keep happening. And, you know, this is just another extension of that. And if nothing happens from this, then again, it, it just speaks to what he said there. Pointing out the problem is not fixing it recommendations and 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 the data has been there through each commission that is brought about after this you know what's apparent is the police is incapable of actually fixing it themselves internal reviews none of that actually work you know there needs to be citizen review boards there needs to be no what is it a, 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 a immunity what is it's it called a qualified immunity qualified immunity yep you know, they operate as a big gang. And, and I'm talking about, I have, my father was a policeman in Ireland. I have a ton of friends who are cops. It's a thankless job 95% of the time. But what I will say is that, you know, they, they protect each other. You know, both good cops and bad cops, for the most part, there's a protection within that that is systematic. Mm-hmm. And you saw it in that that video. Right. That no cop who was there, even the guy who didn't sit right to after the guy is dead says that, you know, where is the protection of that citizen, said citizen, even protection for Shaven himself. You know, if George Floyd didn't die, if that wasn't recorded, and I said to you a couple of weeks ago, if we were there and, you know, we, 
you know, wanted to intervene or did something and wasn't recorded, how that would have went down and how how that would have been then written up as a report. Right. Would it have been that the, the mob got angrier? So we had to like, you know, use, you know, essential force or whatever. God only knows how many times that has happened across America. Right. Sure. You know, it, we've only started recording it recently. Right. And, and, and you know, and, it, and the thing is, like, that links back to that larger, like, the macro psychological uh, forces at play here that I was mentioning in the beginning, which is, you know, and you touched on it with that, uh, the study you were mentioning with that one gentleman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a there's a ton of studies that correlate to this. Uh, what's another? Uh, I forget the name of the study. There's one where they showed police officers quick little flickering images of different quote unquote suspects mm-hmm. and they were supposed to press a button whether they felt threat or no threat. Mm-hmm. And some of the some of the people would have a gun, some wouldn't, some were white, some were black, some were Asian, blah, 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 whatever. And every single time that study was done, they did it among civilian populations and police. It proved the implicit bias that it's pr- pretty much the same across the board from people who are police and aren't police that when they see darker skinned people, mm-hmm. they're more, t- they tend to press the threat button before their mind can even conceptualize that there's a weapon or not. Yeah. And this, the, these psychological factors play out all across, you know, all sectors of society, not even just policing, but you know, it, it really brings into question like what, what you're saying, uh, you know, saying like, Oh, you know, people put themselves in that position. Like, Oh, what would I have done if I was one of those eyewitnesses? You know what I mean? And that's the thing, in my opinion, like, sure, it's horrifying that this man was murdered and you saw all the fallout that happened from it, a countrywide, worldwide movement worldwide. around this. And, but it really brings into question, like, how, wh- wh- how effective or what is the point of these systems that we create if it's not to protect life? Like, that is supposed to be the main prerogative of what law enforcement is on the ground, like in the streets. That's mm-hmm. their main, that's their modus operandi. It's supposed to be the the number one function. If you were to program a robot, like line yeah. one would be protect human life, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're at the point now from where policing was incepted in America, all the way fast forward to 2020 when this happened, where we've built a system where people are so afraid and terrified to step in to save a human life because they're afraid of the repercussions that would come down, rain down on them from the state. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? These yeah. larger questions are are so important in all of this. And I understand it. Like police reform definitely needs to happen. You know, qualified immunities, that's the big, that's the big fish here we all want to fry, right? Mm-hmm. And we're all kind of playing around these issues like, oh, what chokehold should be allowed and which one shouldn't and how much force and uh, yeah. whatever. We're not having these larger philosophical conversations around these systems that we're creating all around us, the, our economy, our policing, our, you know, corporations, the, uh, the effects of people having little to no control and like the job they perform and just taking orders and just being a, a meat, a human meat sack robot, you know, yeah. all these larger questions that we have that don't get discussed in our media. We don't talk about them to one another. You know, it, we, we have to start having these larger, uh, de- widening the scope of these conversations, because if we don't, it's just like you said, even if he goes to prison, even if we're like, Oh, you can't kneel on someone's neck. 
there's dozens of ways you can kill somebody. Right. You know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, well, this one's legally, you know, we're going to keep playing in in the in the arena that the state creates around what 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 is accepted force, you know, and then oh, if you killed someone, but I was using the I, this one's in the handbook, so it's right. okay, and then we can't send someone to jail. Yeah. You know, and I, I get concerned about that because we're we're we're, we're really playing within this <laughs> this this insane like managerial political system around these things right. instead of getting to the heart of the actual human issues here at play. Right, and it is it's human issues, and I've heard it mischaracterized as this is kind of culture wars, but it's not. No, these are human issues, and these are issues that have been going on since the inception of the United States. You know, when the Civil War was ended, and you know, abolition, uh, abolishing slavery was was brought in, you know, black people did not immediately become equal. No. And they didn't become equal, you know, after the civil rights movement either. And you can see that they're, they're not, you know, seen as equal, I guess, in the eyes of a collective systematic police force. Because stop and frisk showed that, mm-hmm. you know, even, even, Think about this. Even Amy Cooper, you remember that lady who was yeah. walking her dog in New York City, the Cocker Spaniel? Mm-hmm. Self, self-identified liberal New Yorker. You know, there's a lot of them. Um, she referred to the police as her personal protection agency. Yep. She weaponized the police, i.e., when did that happen before? Oh, numerous times when white people called rape on black people, like Emmett Till, stuff like that. That's just a modern day version of that. And it doesn't take that to be a rape or something super serious for the police to turn something innocuous as a counterfeit $20 bill bill. into the death of a man for the world to see, which sparked an uprise. Um, So I think the political marketplace and and policing has kind of rewarded white fear for a long, long time. Um, Or, Or ownership fear. It yeah. doesn't even necessarily have to be on race lines. Yeah, you know absolutely. I mean? um, Anyone who's disrupting the established order of what exists. Yeah, and I, I think from a police standpoint, right, obviously it's a necessary function of of law and order, sure. uh, of law, of of just, you know, being a society. You need to have that there. Um, but, you know, if you're going to have exorbitant police budgets, and you're going to have, you know, all this money for them to do them. Give them more training, you know, give them more, you know, methods in which to de-escalate situations instead of, there was what, four officers there? Yep. Four officers on scene at that. And that was the best that they could come up with. Right. And, you know. And there was nobody running at police. There was nobody like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that was literally a manageable situation. Oh, totally. The most manageable. Totally. And look what happened. And I mean, and what you just mentioned there brings up, that's probably like, if you're going to do reform around this, the probably the biggest bite you could take out of this other than qualified immunity, which is that's would probably go all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, but the one of the biggest things that are changed, that can be reformed and changed around on the local and state level and not have to go through the disgusting process of our national politics is like you said, police training, because a lot of police training is focused around like, you know, it's an unspoken, it's an unconscious part of it, but they're trained to be an occupying force. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yep. especially when you talk about a lot of these urban areas, uh, they're, they're trained to be an occupying force and see themselves as outsiders entering a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. That's how they're trained. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and and this isn't like, oh, some police departments like, no, this is generally police training across the country. This is the way that they're taught. They're taught and trained and conditioned to be operating from a place of fear for their own life all the time. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying like, oh, we need to train these people. That's a human uh, consideration. I'm not saying that, you know, oh, you, these people, uh, the police shouldn't be, you know, at any point fearing for their own life. No, I'm not saying that. You know, I'm not expecting everybody to be fucking John Rambo and right. enter every situation with right. no regard for their own life and, you know, thinking about their own families and whatnot. That's not what people are asking. What people are asking is there needs to be someone who's willing at the top because this is one issue where this isn't like uh you know you get in these these mired arguments on the left where it's like oh we need you know outside pressure and, in, and people inside the house to push the, the 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 topic and the issue like no 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 politician of any real weight even Bernie Sanders didn't push this issue anywhere near as hard as it should have been for how big the groundswell was on this last mm-hmm. summer. All those protests that popped up that you watched on your TV screen from like, you know, George Floyd's murder for what, the next three months afterwards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're extremely heightened for a month afterwards. Mm -hmm. No one stepped forward to really try to control and bottle that lightning, uh, the lightning that was coming out of the sky on that. And all the people in the streets, no one did. And, you know, I chalked that up to, you know, stepping in front of police unions is a political suicide, essentially, mm-hmm. for any politician. And, you know, maybe that's another thing that we consider to ameliorate because that's that's the main issue uh, as far as the politics go. But just on, again, like what I said before, on the human level, where you see this outcry, this this pouring out of, you know, not even just black people. There were what you know, look at uh, when or like Portland, like that was mostly there was like 90 percent white people. Right. Those videos you saw the the. Uh, 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 the little zone they took over, yeah. um, you know, it was like a three square block radius where they were right. you know, just took over the streets. You know, this is something that we we had we had a moment last year where, and I'm again, I'm not glorifying the violence that came out of it, but we we had a moment, America, last year where we we all collectively understood, at least I would argue the majority of young people in this country did, because this was clearly a demographically divided issue. A lot of older folks did not like that shit. But mm-hmm. there were a lot of younger people in this country realizing that, no, like if this system is clearly just exist, it, 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 its main function, what we see, all these videos we see, this news coverage, where you're sure there's police who do good things. They save people's lives. They do all this other good stuff. Sure. But when we see state sanctioned violence, just extinguishing life from people over $20 yeah. and all, you know, and all these other litany of just bullshit reasons, right. people getting their people getting beat down, uh, you know, uh, getting their property taken from them, all these things, you know, nobody wants to live in that. That's right. not, that's not a system that's designed for government is supposed to be designed. And it's the whole point of it. When we all agreed at some point in human history to form civilizations and pay taxes and build systems and do all of these things, we agreed it was supposed to be for the betterment of life. When mm-hmm. we have systems, and there's many of them, policing isn't the only issue, right. but when we have systems that clearly are dysfunctional and are not serving the people in the communities in which they're employed, you know, yeah, you're going to see that. You're going to see that that little psychological slip from you know, the obedience of what law is concepted as currently and people diverging from that and trying to take action 
to change things. Right. And when nothing happens at the top and no one steps forward and everyone wanted to blame Black Lives Matter or the people who were out in the streets peace, uh, peacefully protesting, you know, I was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were out there with me, Patter. You mm-hmm. know, we, we were out there in the streets. People trying to blame us because we're trying to make our voice heard and, you know, put some fear in the state. Like, you need to change this shit. Right. We're out here, man. We're not going to accept it anymore. And when none of the people who we elected to represent us step in to fill that void that we can't fill. Because at the end of the day, the, every all these mayors, these governors, again, they're held hostage by the fact that their police unions in their cities and their states are immensely powerful political machines. Yep. When they aren't able to step in, again, we have these systematic breakdowns where you have a population that's clearly crying out for change and seeing an issue with a system that we've built and you don't see any change coming around it. What do people think is going to happen? That was probably the most common refrain that I said last year, right. last summer. What other outcome could anyone arranging this chessboard see happening? You're going to see violence. You're going to see people burning shit. You're going to see people fighting with police. Yep. If nothing changes, it's going to happen Stay again, folks. Yep. It's not going to stop. And sure, you might get some amelioration to the system around economics. And, and again, I think that we were in a unique circumstance last year where, like I said, there was an insane amount of joblessness. People were just generally afraid anxiety, and didn't know yeah. anxiety and didn't know what the hell was going on. They saw not only relating to the police issue, but just generally our country as a whole, the world as a whole, mm-hmm. that like, wow, all these people who we invested all this power in, who we hold up as being the masters of the universe and had the answers to all these things. They had nothing. They had fucking nothing. They had no idea how to contain the pandemic. In America, they had no idea how to ameliorate this police uh, uh, issue that we has been beating the drum continuously. Continuously, we've been seeing evidence for it for a decade on our cell phones, on social media, mm-hmm. and I just again, you know, what do people think is going to happen? And and if we keep brushing these issues under the rug, people wonder why things like QAnon pop up. People wonder why Brexit is an idea for people. Mm-hmm. You know, not to. That Europe doesn't have the same issues around policing America does. But uh, again, these other general anxieties that I'm talking about, right. these things all roll. Scapegoating. These things all roll into one another and form just they this do. this blob that just clogs people's minds. Yeah. Like, what do you think is going to happen, man? I just and, and I, I don't know what else to say about it other than that, because if we don't have any serious conversations and actually have political, you know, movement movements yeah. around this, a real one, not just wildcat uh, you know, uh, uh, protests and riots and all this stuff. Like, no, until someone steps forward or we have some, you know, I, I don't know if on an organic grassroots level, there can be any nationwide organization formed around this because again, everything gets so politicized, right? You know, uh, but something, there has th- to be some movement on this. It's going to keep happening. Well, I think, you know, what you said there is, is an, an important thing because, you know, with, with the and I've I've spouted this you know previously I don't know if I spouted it to you but considering how big that these uh, protests were and I, I'm going to call them protests even though there was rioting and you know burning but considering how big it was you know there was an incredibly you know massive amount of peaceful protests considering that amount of people actually protest you know if you, if you'd have told me there would have been that many people protest and I would have been saying, oh, it's going to be a lot of trouble. Yeah. But the, I think it was some close to like 90% of all the protests were peaceful. But in saying that, anybody who was, you know, burning 
and being mad and just, you know, seeing that, I'm like, I can't really, and I'm not condoning it, but at the same time, I'm also not mad at that person. Because if you, I just listed off all the instances of where the other eye or the other cheek has been turned. Right. And this again is another instance of that where you literally watched a state sanctioned murder. You, it took way too long for them first to fire the fire the police officers and then even charge them. I mean, I I guess they tried to make sure that they got the right charges right first. I think it was Keith Ellison, right? He was the right person yeah. who was heading it. He was the AG. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm with you. Like, unless and I I will say like there there has to be a, b- a bit of political grassroot uh, grassroots stuff in with this. I think you know the stuff that you know. Stacey Abrams is doing and, and getting people out to vote and get people aware of the issues while they're going to vote. Right. I think that that is the way you will change uh, at least outlook from politicians and, you know, get people in power who will are willing to stand up against, you right. know, these powerful, you know, powerful organizations like police unions. Um, you know, the defund the police movement worked in some places i yeah. mean they, they have houston most yeah most, I, I believe i want to say the in in uh minneapolis they also defunded the police yeah and uh seattle as well but seattle was largely due to they have actual socialists in their city council so that yeah. was a big part of it and i mean listen nobody is infallible nobody is infallible black white police citizen army whatever it is we all have problems there's good eggs, there's bad eggs in every walk of life. You know, we're talking about police reform. You know, you have a job which is inherently a tough job. It inherently pits you against people who may have guns, people who may be violent, people who might be irrational, might do things that are out of the blue and stuff you have to be prepared for. But that's the job, right? Mm-hmm. The important things to get that person prepared for the job is training. So... Again, that just proves the point that if money should be going into anything, if resources should be going into anything, if energy should be going into anything, it's, first of all, recruiting police uh, police from communities all over, mm-hmm. not just, you know, a blanket recruiting, but like, you know, literally thought out, where do we need cops from? What demographics do our cops need to be? Now, maybe that is being done. I don't know. But also, the resources need to go into training. Let's take a deep dive into de-escalation, all these different things. Let's make it tough to actually be a cop. Right. And the thing is, it's not like there's an, there isn't a model for this. Like, generally, every European country is way better at policing than us. Now, there's a lot of factors that play into that, like the amount of armed citizens, illegal weapons, mm-hmm. things like that in America. Obviously, that, I would argue, makes the job a little easier in Europe. Yeah, oh, I, but, I'd agree. But still, like... I, I just I, I want to I want to just my last piece I want to say on this is this is something that I feel like it correlates to so many of these things that we've talked about on this podcast, where you talk about, um, you know, the pandemic or a lot of these other political issues, uh, issues we've talked about, $15 minimum wage, uh, you know, uh, the infrastructure bill, uh, the filibuster, all these things we have to in our political discourse. We have to leave behind, and this is my opinion. I think that this is, you know, something that can be effective because this is the way that I try to look at things. I try to look at things on a macro level, you know, what what work needs to be done. And 
what is happening in the discourse. Now, in relation to the George Floyd um, pro- protests and riots, exactly what I thought was going to happen is what happened. I was saying it the first night that I was watching that police department burn in Minneapolis. I was like, man, this is going to devolve into a political tit for tat. We're going to have people take sides on, oh, well, this mm-hmm. should be happening or this shouldn't be happening or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it's like, again, you have to try to – and I'm just offering this as advice for people like, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a politically minded person. And I think that it's, you know, it's our personal duty. Hi, mom. When we have discourse with people on these topics is you should be trying to talk about and lead people in a way or explain things to them in a way that you think is going to generally – help ameliorate the issues when mm-hmm. we talk about the george floyd situation what happened in the protests and the riots afterwards people got so focused on like like what you said should people be riding is it should people be burning things should be and it's like you that that doesn't it literally doesn't matter right just like how we kept having these conversations around like oh should people be having more than four people at their house during coronavirus or right. should people no At the end of the day, we need to try to fix these overarching systems that lead to these outcomes. We keep getting mired in this insane pattern where Mm -hmm. we're all just like, oh, we're pointing like this group's doing this wrong or this person I know is doing that. We get so stuck in that Mm -hmm. that we lose sight of the fact that, no, we have the ability in a democracy to change the overarching concepts and policies and things that – actually affect these issues Mm -hmm. we get so stuck on policing one another that we forget about the actual systems that set the rules and the guidelines we we have to leave this behind where we're constantly worried about you know i I feel like we stepped into like north korea territory uh, uh uh on the pandemic this george floyd stuff where we're we're so worried about like placing each other in different boxes of where oh this person has wrong think or right think on this issue where it's like no man that that shit is literally going to get us nowhere. And again, this is just like what I was saying that at the inception of the pandemic where I was like, fuck, this is going to turn into some finger pointing thing where it's like, oh, this person's doing this right. This person's doing this wrong. We have to focus on holding our systems accountable. Ultimately, don't. Sh- it's like, well, I think I said it on like episode three or four. Stop worrying about implicating and shaming individuals and do that for systems. Yeah. We need to focus on those things. And, you know, like we said. Uh, Derek Chauvin, if he goes to prison, great. Is any change going to come out of it? I don't know. And honestly, the people who have their hands on the levers of power are probably hoping he goes to prison because they're like, holy shit, that'll be a great pressure relief valve for what could come if he doesn't go down or what still might come even if he does go to prison. Because again, we talked about on earlier episodes, like what did Cuomo do? After the George Floyd shit, he said, oh, uh, um, all you different uh, individual counties, you all need to come up with changes by April 31st. You know, we're approaching that date. And mm-hmm. you mentioned it. <laughs> Schenectady police fucking putting chokeholds back in back on the menu, boys. Mm-hmm. So wh- what we're talking about, all those millions of people in the street, all that property damage, all the pain and suffering that came out of that, all of the ruined uh, you know, uh <laughs> relationships between people over politics all this shit coming out of the fact that again the people who have the ability to change things not willing to be bold not willing to put anything forward nothing happening from the top down Mm -hmm. we need to focus on systematic change and who are the people that we're going to elect and what are we going to do in our own communities to actually make this shit happen yeah we can't just talk about it and not do anything we can't just talk about it and not pressure our existing politicians. Yeah, because we give we give 
the state and the apparatuses for the state so much power in terms of governing us. And when they don't do it right, the onus is on us then to change that by voting, by holding them accountable, which is what's so frustrating about something like this. And when you do see systematic issues that you feel, you know, a lot of people felt powerless after that. Yeah. And I think, you know, the last thing I'll say on it is, you know, whenever this trial finishes, I think it's next week, um, I'm guessing, you know, I'm hoping and I'm guessing, and if I was a betting man, I would say he would be convicted. You know, if it was, if it was four minutes, he had his neck on and he would, he died, perhaps he wouldn't. You know, that that is such the margin of error when it comes to stuff like this, is that like... <laughs> Each of those instances that I saw before, like when we talk about, you know, Tamir Rice, uh, you know, Ahmad Arbery, uh, you know, he was he wasn't killed by police, but you know, it was another instance of that. I wasn't confident that a policeman was going to get charged and, and put away. No, yeah, you know it's I mean? like the common refrain. It's just like, oh well, he's going to get off because yeah. it happened so often, right? Um, so I think when all this is said and done, meaning this trial. I think there needs to be some important, some important dialogue that continues. Um, and again, a lot of people are having conversations. Conversations are great. But as I mentioned, the conversations have been going on a long, long time. The, the dialogue needs to be around change, around budget, about around, you know, where do our resources go? What ongoing training needs to take place? How often are the police meeting with the community leaders? How how long are they meeting with the uh, community? Is there community policemen in each of these areas? Are there police people from these communities? Those are the type of things that need that will bring about systematic change. What what tools can we create, or what mechanisms can we remove to hold people accountable that kill people? Yeah, whether they're represent whether they're uh, authorized to use force by the state or not right you know what's the difference because at the end of I mean, the day you know, it's a job about, we're talking about second degree murder in a manslaughter charge mm-hmm. you know if i put my knee on your neck outside of your house right now and killed you guaranteed i'm going to prison right. it's not a fucking question right you know what i mean right. and again it goes back to these these philosophical based questions what fucking difference is it if someone has a badge or not? What right. difference is it if someone's a governor or not, if he is, uh, sexually harasses yep. 10 women, uh, you know, in a workplace, that he shouldn't at least lose his job? He's a person and a citizen in this country. Exactly. Yeah. What difference is it? You know what I mean? And, you know, I'll take it to the highest level. You know, what difference is it that a president of a country just Crap. drops bombs indiscriminately and, oh, I killed some civilians? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, these are the mindsets that we have to peel back all of the the kayfabe and bullshit structures we've built around these things and people need to return back to, you know, something that's been left far behind. I don't know when I can't put a time on it, but you know, when the actual height of human intelligence and philosophical thought was based around, you know, centered around the concept of protecting human life. I don't Mm -hmm. know where we left that behind, but you know, we're in an insane place with it. And it's it's like what I said before when we you know what we said before about like the Sarah Everard case and what I hoped was going to happen out of that summer with George Floyd like that there could be some healing process out of this mm-hmm. but you know honestly there's so many factors where people are just tortured and in pain and don't want to care about anyone else I mean I think that's very obvious in America mm-hmm. especially uh, obviously it's an issue around the world but you know I don't know man like we we really have to. 
I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know if there's any like one event or anything that can happen. And certainly like, you know, what you said around gun reform, like if a bunch of little white kids in kindergarten uh, at Sandy Hook getting murdered wasn't going to do it, will anything? Probably not. If a guy getting strangled by someone's knee for nine minutes on video that we all witnessed doesn't bring change, will anything? Right. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. And that speaks to that deeper question, which is, you know, is is the is the human is the human condition too far gone? <laughs> is this project of civilization too big <laughs> and out of control where we've given too much power to people where we no longer have the ability to actually affect change anymore? I don't know. Well, I think if you look at the examples of good police and and you look at the examples of good police departments, not just in America but around the world, I think there's points to be taken from all of those. And I certainly think America's relationship, you know, with guns is not necessarily that the heart of the problem, but it's a contributing factor. Certainly. Um, I'd imagine that when you're a cop, and I'm speculating here, but imagine when you're a cop, you get quite a bit of firearms training mm -hmm. about when to use it, when to use all this. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, the body cam stuff is, that should feel like a protectionary thing for the policeman. Right. Not necessarily the fucking the person that they're trying to be arrested or in coming contact with. So, I mean, there's things that can be done, but what I want to see happen from all this is I want to see less resistance from police and police unions. Like the best way to reform it really is, is if, you know, police themselves, and I'm not saying police themselves, but police people in the, the, the system itself starts actually pointing out when something is wrong and, Obviously, uh, qualified immunity, will, getting rid of that will go a long way to that. But, you know, the these strong police unions who, you know, I, I just have glimpses of the the New York uh, police union head, like, screaming on the steps. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Right around that? Like, he'd yeah. been somehow put out. You know, the, the size of the New York Police Department. The NYPD was jokingly threatening Bill de Blasio's daughter last summer. Okay? Like, mm -hmm. there's... We're, we're, we're teetering on, on a level here. Like, to the point where, you know, like, I have a lot of libertarian friends that I have sympathy for when they talk about, like, Second Amendment stuff in that regard. You know, yeah. we, we chatted about it. Living through that last summer and seeing, like... You know, same thing I was saying. Like, I, it wasn't just my uh, realization. I We watched the whole country realize it. Like, yeah. oh, no one's in control. Nobody. No one's in control. Nobody. Because I mean, even January all, 6th, nobody's in control. We all forget, like, Americans, for, for the amount of hardship that we go through, for the amount of bullshit our government puts us through, illegal wars, sapping our resources to go and fucking do all this bullshit in our name around the world, murdering people. Uh, extorting countries and leaders, taking away their sovereignty. We're one of the most tame populations on the planet, considering how out of fucking control our government is. Mm -hmm. And I, so I have a lot of sympathy for, you know, people who get more extreme. And I'm again, it's not condonement. It's, <laughs> again, what the fuck else do you think is going to happen? Right. You know what I mean? And I see that as it, it's, it's, 
it, it, it creeps further and further towards the danger of reaching that flashpoint mm-hmm. where, you know, like the insurrection, that's another example of it, folks. Now, granted, you had QAnon and Trump all amalgamated into that, but you still have these base all part of the soup. Yeah. You have these base underlying conditions that are heating that pot all the time. Mm-hmm. People worried about where their next fucking meal is going to come from, whether they're going to be able to pay their rent, pay their mortgage, but- all these things, these basic issues that just contribute to the general anxiety people feel. And then when you add on all of these <laughs> specific fears that they have. It's a, yeah, it's it just fear monger. It just magnifies it. It's the know. blame game. It's the fear monger. And it's the need to have a scapegoat. All these different things play into the fact of, of why there's inherent bias in a lot of things. In why black people have been ostracized in this country. And people of color have been ostracized for a long, long time. Um, and, you know... There's not much more we can say about it. I mean, at this point, uh, you know, I, I just hope that, you know, one of the things that we take as a as a society now with seeing this, and we're, we're living through some, you know, hot button issues. Um, and I think because of media today, you know, everything really is heightened. Um, and they play their they play their part in, you know, you know, turning up that temperature quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. You know, both good and bad. I will say, but 24 hour news cycle, all that really, you know, makes it so that like every issue seems like a breaking news issue. But the reality is there should only be about three or four breaking news issues a week. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we're going to have general things that are going to pop up that are going to be newsworthy. And when I mean newsworthy is that you should be reading it in the paper or seeing it on a report. Not as something that requires like 15, 20 minutes and article after article after article. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about freedom and, and the ability to live and be who you want, that doesn't mean that you live in a neighborhood where the police drive up and down your neighborhood, you know, way more than the other neighborhood. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's that's part of things that have been in play for 100, 100 plus years. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not something that can just change overnight. That has to change by the systems that are built up around that as, as extensions of the state. Um, but yeah, we uh, we try to mash that out as best we could. But, <laughs> you know, there's a lot more to talk about. And hopefully, um, you know, anyone who's listening to this, you know, you're you're on the same page as us in terms of this person should be guilty. But also in terms of this shit ain't right. You know, it wasn't right when we saw it with Eric Garner. It's not right when we see it with George Floyd. It's not right when we see it with Ahmaud Arbery. It's not so many people of color, persons of color, who, you know, are dying at the hands of people who see them differently just because. And, you know, hopefully, I don't know. There's not more I can say about it. You know what I mean? It, it pains me because... As, as someone who came to this country, and like I said, I've talked to you before about it, I, I came here kind of naive, you know, as a, as a land of opportunity. And, you know, I didn't see my first black person until I was probably 10 or 11, or at least like up close, honest to God. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't really change. Like, I wasn't like, wow, a black person. But, but that's the kind of society that I grew up in. You know, Ireland is Ireland. It's changed a lot now. It's The demographics has changed quite uh completely but there's still some of that old ireland left behind you know what i mean where you know it's almost like you know your your old uncle like still isn't quite politically correct in what he says or how he talks about people you know what i'm saying and that's the same in america 
When I talk about the changes and, I, and I, I reference reports from the 1920s and 1930s or even like the civil rights movement, which was the 60s, or, you know, Redline, all these things are not that long ago. It's naive of us to think that they're going to be changed completely and, and ameliorated, to, to use your word. It, it, it's just not. The work is still there to be done. And the work means not just highlighting it, it means following through. It, it doesn't mean just going to the streets. It means going to the streets and making sure you're heard and something is done. Mm -hmm. Yep. And a big shout out to, you know, all of us and uh, other groups locally. Yeah. Around a here lot of people doing a lot of work. That are still keeping the work up. Because, you know, like, like I said, we, you know... Uh, we impact us like you know I, I was part of a group last summer and we tried to put some work in and it was honestly it was defeating because you saw how all this movement was happening in the grassroots on the national level and again like I I saw it right out of the gate uh, you know I'll admit it I I wouldn't say I I didn't quit I didn't quit on like you know the level the, the cause the, the cause or the ideological push behind what I was saying in speeches and stuff I wrote but I could tell no one was stepping forward and you can't have, there's no such thing as a grassroots movement is meant to be used as exterior pressure for people you have on the inside that will try to stop normal, uh, prog normal, uh, you know, procedure of things threatening with what the the demands of are the exterior mm -hmm. and that never happened it just right. it just never happened we just kept plugging along because you know coronavirus that was you know it swept it right back under the rug the mm -hmm. election came up and i don't know we'll we'll see where it goes folks but i think that you know a guilty verdict here will it'll certainly it'll certainly help and you know i god help minneapolis if this man doesn't go yeah. to prison i yeah. mean it won't be just minneapolis no um yeah so thanks for joining us on our double digit episode we'll be back next week more topics more quick hits um yeah and else you want to say ramon no um and uh you know thanks for listening we are going to play out with uh little babies the bigger picture for the spotify listeners this is going to be a new format i wanted to mention folks if you can get on Spotify, we're going to be playing some music at the end of episode, something that pertains yeah. to the episode uh, subject matter. Um, I'll be chopping up a couple different uh, uh, versions of it for the folks who don't switch over. He's but, our sound man. But yeah, hey, get on Spotify. You know, a little, little plug. Maybe they want to endorse. I don't know. Maybe they want to sponsor us. <laughs> Let's do it. But yeah, thanks again. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend. See you. Last night, people protesting in Minneapolis escalated as demonstrators were lashed by tear gas and rubber bullets. The main message here, the main message, the here? Main message here, is that they want to see those officers involved. They want to see those officers arrested. Officers arrested. Arrest, arrest, arrest. Trade my 4 by 4 for GC3, ain't no more freeless feet. I gave him chance, a chance, a chance again. I even told him, please. I find it crazy the police to shoot you and know that you dead, but still tell you to freeze. Fucked up, I seen what I seen. I guess that mean hold him down if he say he can't breathe. It's too many mothers just grieving. They're killing us for no reason. Been going on for too long to get even. Throw us in cages like dogs and hyenas. I went to court and they sent me to prison. My mama was crushed when they said I can't leave. First I was drunk, then I sobered up quick when I heard all that time that they gave it to I He got a license plus. We just some products of our environment. How the fuck they gon' blame us? You can't fight fire with fire.
fire, I know, but at least we can turn off the flames on. Every color person ain't dumb, and all whites not racist. I be judging by the mind and heart, I ain't really in the faces. Fuck up the way that we living is not getting better, you gotta know how to survive. Crazy, I had to tell all of my loved ones to carry a gun when they going outside. Stay in the mirror whenever you drive, overprotective, go crazy for mine. You gotta pay attention to the sign, seem like the blind following the blind. Thinking about everything that's going on, I boost security up in my home. I'm with my kind of, they right or they wrong. I call him down here, pick up the phone, and it's five in the morning, he waking up on it. Tell him wherever I'm at, then they coming. I see blue lights, I get scared and start running. That shit be crazy, they post to protect us. Swords and handcuffs and arrest us. Why they go home at night, that shit messed up. Knowing we needed help, they neglect us. One of them who gon' make them respect us. I can see in your eye that you fed up. Fuck around, got my shot, I won't let up. They know that we a problem together. They know that we can storm anywhere. It's bigger than black and white. It's a problem with the whole way of life. It can't change overnight. But we gotta start somewhere, might as well go ahead start here We done had a hell of a year, I'ma make it count why I'm here God is the only man I fear Fuck it, I'm going on the front line, he gon' bust your ass If you come at that gun line, you know when the storm go away Then the sunshine, you gotta put your head in the game when it's crunch time I want all my sons to grow up to be monsters I want all my daughters to show out in public Seem like we losing our country, but we gotta stand up for something So this what it comes to, every video I see on my country I got power now, I gotta say something Corrupted police been the problem where I'm from But I'd be lying if I said it was all of them I ain't do this for the trend, I don't follow them Altercations with the law had a lot of them People speaking for the people, I'm proud of them Stick together, we can get it up out of them I can't lie like I don't rap about killing and dope But I'm telling my youngest to vote I deal with diggers, I didn't have no choice and no hope I was forced to just jump in and go This bullshit is all that we know But it's time for a change Got time to be serious, no time for no gang Ain't taking no more, let us go for them chains God bless they soul, every one of them names It's bigger than black and white it's a problem with the whole way of life, it can't change overnight But we gotta start somewhere, might as well go ahead and start here We done had a hell of a year, I'ma make it count why I'm here God is the only man I fear They training officers to kill us, then shooting protesters with these rubber bullets They regular people, I know that they feel us, these scars too deep to heal us What happened to COVID, nobody remember, it ain't making sense I'm just here to vent, it happened to one of your people, it's different We get it, the system is wicked, just learn how to pick it Knowledge is power, I swear I'm a witness, I know that I'm gifted I won't go too deep, cause I'm scared they'll get me, ain't scared to admit it Some shit I can't mention, it's people who can Well here's the chance, I won't take the stand, but I'll take a stand for what I believe Must not be breathing the air that I breathe, you know that the way that I bleed you can be I never been a fan of police, but my neighborhood know I try to keep peace So it's only right that I get in the streets March for a reason, I just on GP How people die for us to be free, fuck do you mean? This was a dream, now we got the power that we need to have They don't want us with it, and that's why they mad yeah. It's bigger than black and white it's a problem with the whole way of life, it can't change overnight But we gotta start somewhere, might as well go ahead and start here We done had a hell of a year, I'ma make it count why I'm here God is the only man I fear It's bigger than black and white It's a problem with the whole way of life, it can't change overnight But we gotta start somewhere, might as well go ahead and start here We done had a hell of a year, I'ma make it count why I'm here God is the only man I fear